Jewel Parker Rhodes is an American best-selling novelist and educator. She is the author of five middle grade novels, including the New York Times bestseller and number one kids indie best pick, Ghost Boys. Jewel is also the Virginia C. Piper Endowed Chair in Creative Writing at Arizona University and she has written many award-winning books for adults. Nikki Gamble met with Jewel to talk about Ghost Boys and her plans for the future. Jewel, could we start by talking about your journey into reading and writing? You know, I was a poor kid born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And for the longest time, I did not even realize that white people existed in reality. I lived in a very segregated neighborhood, but I had teachers and librarians in elementary school and secondary school who fed me books. And feeding me books, they stimulated my imagination. They made me change and see and believe in different horizons for myself. And I started writing stories. And my very first story was in the third grade. I wrote The Last Scream, uh, and I illustrated it too, and I still have it. Um, But through all my years of schooling, even up until I was a junior in college, I never ever thought that I could be a writer. Uh, And that's because I never read a book written by a person of color. And one day I saw in the library a book by a black woman, and I read the book, and it was like a revelation. It was like, black women write books? I can do that too. And I switched my major to English, and I started writing. And it took me about 10 years to write my first novel for adults, uh, Voodoo Dreams, about uh, a voodoo queen from New Orleans, a historical fiction novel. And I think a lot of it was that I wanted to write about what I could imagine, not what was drawn from my own life history, that I wanted to use my creativity. So it took me quite a long time, but always, always in the back of my mind, I hoped one day to write a book that would be for youth. It seemed to me that that was the highest calling, um, that youth books had kept my spirit and soul alive when I most needed it. And I thought if I could write a good book for youth, my life would be complete. So even though I wrote approximately seven novels or you know, uh, memoirs or textbooks about creative writing for adults, I always was getting ready to write for children. And it wasn't until Hurricane Katrina hit in New Orleans that I had a new adult novel out about New Orleans. And they sent me to New Orleans two weeks after Hurricane Katrina. And I saw all the devastation, and my mind just went immediately to, what about the children? How are they surviving this? Um, How much do they need to be resilient? You know, how are they affected by this horrific hurricane? And that was when I began writing my first novel for youth. So now I'm five novels in in America, and I'm especially proud of my new book, Ghost Boys. The content of Ghost Boys requires and expects a large degree of emotional maturity. Do you think about how to make the challenging subject matter accessible to a younger audience? In terms of my history, I'd always been writing about race, class, religious, gender issues, that I've always been writing for equity and social justice. So that 
I established well in my adult books. And one of the things I wanted to do for youth is I didn't want to patronize them. I still wanted to write about, you know, all the complex issues that sort of affect one's life. And so trying then to find the way to capture it for a younger audience was challenging. So rather than throwing out ideas that I would say this is only reserved for adults, you know, such as you should not be prejudiced, you know, that that um, male-female relationships are critical and healthy for everyone, you know, that, that instead how to do that in a way that children could appreciate and still empathize with and understand. So I think that in a way I became a better children's writer because I wrote for adults, that I was still trying to keep the complexity. So a lot of people will say that my language is very simple because I write out of an oral tradition, the African-American voice speaking through me into the novel. But in terms of the substance, I want it to be layered as you would with an adult novel. And I want it to be layered so that a teacher or a librarian or a parent can actually engage in conversations that illuminate and help spark discussion between you know the young person and, and the adult. So I'm also very much aware that I want to write books that are in school libraries. I want to write things that they can go back and reread and still find substance in the novel. For readers who are not familiar with the story of Ghost Boys, could you provide a brief introduction? Ghost Boys is about the murder of a young black kid um, by the police because of racial bias. Uh, They see him with a toy gun and they immediately leap to this idea of an aggressive adult black male um, because of stereotypes and they shoot him, kill him, without a moment's pause. So it really is a novel that mourns um, the loss of children's innocence, uh, mourns their tragic deaths due to racial bias, uh, racial stereotypes, and also connects into an historical pattern that has existed in America since slavery and also since the death of Emmett Till, another young black boy that was murdered in Mississippi in the 1950s, um, and his death sparked the civil rights movement. So in a sense, I'm hoping the story of this more contemporary death of a young black man will spark another wave of enlightenment that will help make the world better for all children. You mentioned Emmett Till But reading Ghost Boys brings to mind the harrowing story of the murder of Tamir Rice. Yes, Tamir Rice's death truly stirred me in ways that were ever so profound. I think, one, um, he connected me to the fears that I had for my own son. Um, Every time he goes out the door, you know, as a young black man... I have to say, be safe, (laughs) you know, or I have to give him the conversation, you know, of of what to do around police or how not to appear threatening in some way. And that conversation that I have to give to my own son, I'm sure Tamir Rice's mother had given 
to him. And yet you have this irony that in America, so many children play with guns, toy guns. It's part of our American culture and the, you know, the Wild West play with toy guns. And there he is doing the most American, you know, childish game of playing with a toy gun and shooting the bad guys. And a policeman literally jumps out of a car and shoots him and allows him really to lay there and bleed, uh, that they do not call on help um, because they're so stunned that it is a child. But they, as adults, totally abdicated their responsibility, which was to protect children, to nurture children and sustain them. And that's what I fear for my son and all the other you know, children of color. The problem of xenophobia still, the problem of racism and racial bias in America is still ever so strong. So Laquan McDonald, Trayvon Martin, it seems recently just more and more young men, you know, children under the age of 18 um, are shot and killed under false circumstances. And the only defense that the police have is that they were afraid. But why be afraid? So it's something wrong with how they see the black child. They can't see the youth. They can't see the innocence. And instead, they're seeing through a lens of all the discrimination that still permeates our world. And therefore, there are tragic consequences. In the UK, police do not routinely carry firearms. That's not to say we have a prejudice-free system. However, do you think new gun laws would make a difference in the US? I do think by not having armed policemen, you basically prevent then that sort of action, that unjustified violent action that comes from not seeing someone clearly. And that is a blessing. It really, really is. I think all of us perhaps have bias and have problems sometimes seeing each other clearly. But we all need that second to say, wait, why why am I not seeing clearly? That moment where we think, take a deep breath and realize this is just another human being as I am. And so if you can do that, plus you don't have a gun, the outcome will be a much more positive one than someone who doesn't take that breath and they have a gun. And therefore we have the loss of life. It would be great if you could read the opening chapter for us. My pleasure. How small I look, laid out flat, my stomach touching ground, my right knee bent, and my brand new Nike stained with blood. I stoop and stare at my face, my right cheek flattened on concrete. My eyes are wide open, my mouth too. I'm dead. I thought I was bigger, tough, but I'm just a bit of nothing. My arms are outstretched like I was trying to fly like Superman. I'd barely turn, sprinting. Pow, pow, two bullets. Legs gave way. I fell flat, hard. I hit snowy ground. Ma's running. She's wailing. My boy, my boy. A policeman holds her back. Another policeman is standing over me, murmuring. It's a kid. It's a kid. Ma's struggling. She gasps like she can't breathe. She falls to her knees and screams. 
I can't bear the sound. Sirens wail. Other cops are coming. Did someone call an ambulance? I'm still dead. Alone on the field. The policeman closest to me is rubbing his head. In his hand, his gun dangles. The other policeman is watching Ma like she's going to hurt someone. Then he shouts, stay back. People are edging closer, snapping pictures, taking video with their phones. Stay back. The policeman's hand covers his holster. More people come. Some shout. I hear my name. Jerome. It's Jerome. Still, everyone stays back. Some curse, some cry. Doesn't seem fair. Nobody ever paid me any attention. I skated by, kept my head low. Now, I'm famous. What lay behind your decision to write the story from Jerome's point of view? I imagine writing from the perspective of a murdered child might be challenging. This book, my publisher asked me if I was interested in writing it. And my first response was, no, no way. I am not going to go there. Um, And it took me several months to come around to the idea that I should try to honor all the young black boys who had been murdered. Partly I thought, what's the worst that can happen? I could fail, and therefore the book wouldn't get published. And that's not so bad. But I could also try, and if I could find the way towards affirmation and grace and loving, um, I might be able to bear witness and honor them in a way that does in fact help make the world a better place. And that's, I think, where I finally got to. But in terms of how to tell it, I wasn't sure. And it wasn't until I thought of ghosts. (laughs) that I could tell the story. And my editor was really worried when I said ghosts because she had no idea what I was going to do. But I think it made me connect with my own childhood of seeing the images of Emmett Till. And also in African-American spirituality, there's this idea that the spirit lingers on, that it's not gone and it's accessible. So I thought... Well, Emmett is still a big part of my life and that that ghost boy, Emmett, would connect with Jerome, the character inspired by Tamir Rice. And then I sat down and that first sentence, how small I look, him looking at himself on the ground just poured out of me. But funnily enough, I wrote 26 pages and then I said, that's it. I'm done. The book is over. Uh, And my editor said, well, it's kind of short. And it took me two and a half years where I could write for a bit. And then I had to take a I had to take a break, a vacation. I had to take five or six weeks off that the pain of going into these boys' lives was so much that I could not do it on a daily basis. So it took me a while and it was very incremental But that voice of how small I look and him trying to see himself and then seeing the pain that his death has brought to his family, his community, 
and then seeing Sarah all became connected together of how this young man is trying to make sense of the loss of his own life. I think it's worth pointing out that the story of Jerome and the real case of Tamir is that these boys were not part of gang culture. It's too easy to dismiss incidents like this as though they were somehow of the child's making. Jerome is clearly what might be called a good boy with a stable and loving family. No, if somebody sees the colour of your skin in a negative light, you know, whether you're, you're a good boy and it doesn't, ma- it doesn't matter, you know. And the same is true historically for Emmett Till, you know, a young good kid from Chicago who, you know, met a white woman and everything he did in that sort of seconds interaction was misinterpreted in a negative light and for that he was murdered. One of the things that Emmett's mom did is that she said I want the casket to be open. I want the world to see what they did to my boy and what they did to this young man is just horrifying. He could only be recognized by his ring finger and bearing witness the civil rights movement just was electrified and came alive in a new way and I wanted ghost boys and Jerome's death to matter and also electrify young people today you know that they should make the world a better place but Jerome he was good he was kind he was a brother he was a son he liked to play minecraft you know video games he did his lessons and in fact he gets the toy gun because there's a new kid at school who's feeling estranged and brought the toy gun you know as kind of protection and he makes friends with this young man so the whole irony that you know he's given the toy gun to play with because of his own kindness and his outreach to this new, you know, school student causes his death is just beyond belief. Perhaps one of the unexpected aspects of the story is your concern to give some space to the perspective of the police officer. Well, I knew I had to show that side of the story because I think as a fiction writer, um, I have to love all my characters. And it's important that as a writer that I don't stereotype that I don't tell a one-sided story, that I see the nuances and the complexity. So I always knew that we would have um, the court case in which the officer would say, I was afraid, I was afraid. Uh, The line that finally came out of me was a line that Jerome says where he recognizes that this police officer believes he's telling the truth. So he questions, is it possible to believe something so much that it makes it true, even though it's a lie? Um, And I think that sort of sums up, you know, the way in which the mind can create all these kinds of avenues that sort of distort our perception. So it was important for me to have Jerome recognize that this police officer is flawed, but it was also important to have Sarah just humanize her dad. Though he was flawed in the instance regarding Jerome, he is a good dad, you know. Um, he, he does want to, um, you know, make change, and he wants to be a better man. And it's his daughter, Sarah, that elicits that from him. And that's ever, ever so important. 
And it's also important then for, I think, children who very often lead us and guide us if we would only listen to them as adults, that it's very important for me to have a child say, Dad, I love you, but you were wrong, and I'm going to act and think differently. And that, to me, is the part of education that's so important for every individual to become strong, critical thinkers. So Sarah is very, very important. But it's not that Jerome appears to Sarah simply because she was white and I had it in my mind that I had to make it white and show white people weren't all so bad and that kind of sense. No, that would be sort of stereotypical. It was that Sarah is like so many other young white girls, children that I meet all the time who have such love and good hearts. So it's really all of these characters, Carlos, Jerome, Sarah, are honoring what I see in our youth today. So they are real to me, you know? So they're not just foils or vehicles in the story. They are real people that I'm tapping into because Sarah, many Sarahs and Sams and Carloses and Juans exist and do not have the curse of racial bias in their eyesight and in their hearts. Miss Penny, Sarah's teacher, plays a pivotal role in opening Sarah's eyes to the truth that she needs to hear. It must have taken some soul-searching to work out how to write about this. Well, writing Miss Penny, I tend to, in all my books, have a moment where I honour teachers and librarians. To me, they are the shining light, and Miss Penny helps educate Sarah, uh, and for that, I think that makes her a heroine. Writing Jerome's death, I did write the scene based upon material that has existed in books and on the internet for over 50-some years about what happened, and there was always this inference that Emmett might have wolf-whistled or he might have been sassy, that he might have done something that meant that he sort of deserved to be taken to task, right? And I always, always hated that inference because I believed that there was no way that um, that could be so. And I wrote the scene, um, and I did hold back a great deal on the violence of it, um, but it's more that sense of, limiting information, not like making the information and the death be absent from the novel. I think that would have been incredibly patronizing. So the death, the murder is there. But once the book was in copy editing, um, there was a book that came out where Miss Bryant, the white woman that Emmett had met in the 1950s, at the age of 81, now finally admitted that everything that she said about him and what he did to her was a lie that Emmett was truly an innocent. And I asked for the manuscript to come back to me. And we took it out of copy editing, and I got a chance to rewrite that scene. So there's none of the other sort of inference that had been part of the historical record that he had maybe maybe been a little bit sassy or maybe did a little this or a little bit of that. And I was able to write that scene fully and confidently with him appearing as the innocent child that he was. And that was very, very important to me. And then, of course, I think the motif of having ghosts, that the moment that he's murdered, that his spirit rises, does give a different take on death. Um, That sense of spirituality, that the spirit goes on, and 
continues on, I think, becomes the mediator that helps children deal with that more. And particularly then if they live on as a spirit that's still striving to do good in the world, to work through people, to make people like Sarah, to make the world a better place. When you talk to young people, how aware are they of the historical context in which this violence occurs? And how do they respond to your story? Well, one thing that a young man said to me that gripped me very much, um, I was in Boston and he said to me, do you mean discrimination against black boys? It's been going on like forever. And I said, yes, you know, ever since the days of slavery. And he looked at me with the sweetest face. He said, I thought it was me. I thought something was wrong with me. And I just melted. So the pattern of the systemic racism, I think young people, they don't think of it that way. And so the book is helping them think of it that way. I even met a 26-year-old adult father um, who said he had never, ever heard of Emmett and didn't know the importance of Emmett to the civil rights movement and how that there were connections between our present and our past. So I think there are ways in which it opens up the sense of a hunger for kids wanting to know about real things, you know, realistic fiction, uh, and wanting having questions about things that they want people to address. So my book, at least in America, has struck a chord. Jewel, thank you for talking to us today and for writing such an important story, oh, which young people need to hear. Well, thank you. Thank you so very, very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you.